Well, last week, as you're aware, we were concerned really with the content of the gospel message that Peter has been preaching to a crowd of thousands gathered on the day of Pentecost. That glorious saving message, the saving message that was given to us as a gift of God, as by the grace of God, that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that stands upon three pillars. You'll remember those pillars. One was the cross for the sufferings of Christ. That second pillar was the empty tomb or the resurrection of Christ. And the third pillar, which is the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was the gospel that Jesus authorized in Luke 24 that Paul delivered even to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ suffered for sin according to the scriptures. He was raised for our justification according to the scriptures and that sinners must repent and believe the gospel. These are the bones of the gospel. You hear people say sometimes, that house has good bones. What do we mean? That's, it's, its frame is solid and its design is good and it is ready to be remodeled and to have everything hung upon it that's necessary to make a house a home. Well, so it is here. We have the bones of the gospel and each of these truths can be fleshed out to a greater degree. The cross teaches us, for instance, that God is holy, that he cannot countenance sin. It teaches us that men are sinful and that men are in need of a savior. It teaches us that God will not and cannot remain just if he were to simply sweep sin under a carpet, but there must be payment for sin. We know from the cross that Christ came, the Lamb of God, to, to be punished in our place, that he stood as a substitute for sinners who would entrust themselves to him. From it we see that holy wrath has been and will be yet again revealed from heaven by this holy God against sin. The cross teaches us that our sins can be forgiven. What about the resurrection? What about the empty tomb? What does it have to teach us? Well, it teaches us that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, that all that he claimed to be sinless, the Son of God, the infinite one from who, who came from heaven to offer himself for our sins, was in fact resurrected from the dead. He conquered death because of his sufficiency and that there is a fountain for, fountain for forgiveness now that is open to the defiled and that death has been defeated and that there is in fact an assurance and a hope for eternal life. Well, today we want to look at that final piece of what this God-ordained gospel is, namely that sinners must repent and believe the gospel. Before the world began, God drew up a plan for the redemption of sinners and he took initiative in the giving of his son as a sacrifice for sin. God raised him from the dead and seated Christ at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of this and more God did for the salvation of sinners. But what must man do? What, what is it that man must do in response to all that God has done? Well, that is the issue that is addressed by our text. And we noted last week that all of the Bible is important, but there are some truths that the Bible teaches that are more important. And just in the same way, there are certain, as there are certain truths that supersede others, so there are questions that are more important than others. And in our passage this morning, we see the most important question being asked. And that is, how can a man be saved? It is a question so important and so urgent that it presses down on the heart and the conscience of every man, every woman, and even upon children. What must I do to be saved? How do I flee from the wrath to come? It's a question that cannot be evaded and in some way, shape, or form must be answered by everyone. 
This question above every question is posed in the very first verse of our text this morning. Let's look together at Acts 2 and we'll pick up in verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Father, this is your word. Our words are powerless. We cannot affect much, if anything, by what comes from our mouth. But Lord, from your mouth, you healed the sick. From your mouth, you raised the dead. From your mouth, you commanded the wind and the waves and they obeyed. From your mouth, the universe was created. And Lord, from your mouth is our necessary food. And I pray this morning that you would feed your sheep, strengthen us by these truths. And Lord, grow us that we might be more like our Savior and that you might be more glorified. Amen. Well, we come to the point of application in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. At the outset of the message, you'll remember that there were some who were mocking, saying, oh, they're full of sweet wine, and and there were others who were marveling at what they were beholding as they saw the 120 filled with the Holy Spirit, and they heard them speaking forth the praise of God with power in their own languages, and It is over this divided crowd that Peter raises his voice. He stands up and he heralds the truth. He declares the word of God to give an explanation for the phenomena which they saw. And Peter begins preaching from the Old Testament. He begins in Joel chapter 2. And he starts talking about the day of the Lord. That there is a day of wrath coming for those who live in rebellion against God. And there is a day where that wrath will come and it will come like a thief in the night. It will come with terror and it will come with a finality. It is something for which every one of us ought to tremble. Who can stand in that day? But for the righteous, for those who have called out to the Lord for salvation, for those who have hoped in Christ, the day of the Lord means the reward of the Lord. It means a day of blessing and great joy as God vindicates himself and his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says, look, the proof that the day of the Lord is coming is that what you see around you is the very pouring out of the Holy Spirit that God promised before that great day. Peter says the last days have come and the fourth quarter clock has started and it won't be long until God's wrath and indignation is going to be unleashed on this world. He calls them to call upon the Lord. He says everyone who calls upon the Lord shall be saved. And then Peter turns to Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and he he. He proves that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the very Messiah that Israel has been looking forward to for so long. He tells his audience that Christ has died and that he was buried and that he was raised to resurrection life just as the scriptures said he would be. And beyond that, that he has ascended and exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. And these psalms, though they were written by David, do not ultimately find their fulfillment in David, but in the greater son of David, which is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
He is the fulfillment of them. It was not David who was kept from decomposition at death. It was not David who was raised from the dead. It was not David who was the one who ascended into heaven. It is not David who sits at the right hand of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all of these things. And this audience on the day of Pentecost, listening to Peter's powerful and unapologetic preaching, is utterly undone. You could hear a pin drop. There was nobody checking their Facebook on their cell phone at this point in the message. Their attention was arrested and they were, they were focused and they were listening and they were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it is this point, having convinced them from the scriptures that Jesus was their Messiah, is their Messiah, that he is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. It is at this point that Peter drops an atomic bomb upon their consciences. Look at it in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That word Lord is Yahweh. This is the Lord. This is your Messiah, the Christ. And you crucified him. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, he had mentioned that, you remember, earlier in the message in somewhat of a softer package because he acknowledged that, well, the Romans were involved in actually nailing him to the cross. And and you might even look to God who ultimately, because of his sovereign and, and, uh, and, and predestined plan, was accomplishing his ends. But here, Peter narrows the focus and brings it right down to their consciences. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. This time there is no hiding. He is Lord and he is Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, verse 37, when they heard what? Well, when they heard all that Peter had preached, but in particular that word that they had crucified, the Messiah, panic set in. And this, beloved, is the outworking of what we often quote from Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This passage, in fact, if you look at it, is bookended by statements about hearing the word. Verse 37. Notice at the beginning, now when they heard this, and look down to verse 41. Those who had received his word were baptized. You see, this passage, this section is bookended, and there is a difference between hearing the word and receiving the word, but in this passage, they mean the same thing. These people had ears to hear. They heard what Peter said. They had received what Peter said. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and takes the word of God and applies it to the soul of man, to the conscience of man. The Spirit of God is here convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what we see is is so important for us to take note of, beloved, that sinners must come face to face with their sin. You cannot tickle people into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot give them what they want. You cannot avoid the issues of rebellion and of sin and of the holiness of God. You've got to start there. There is no good news without the bad news. And there is no salvation apart from the indictment of sinners. And Peter, following in the footsteps of Christ, following in the footsteps of the prophets, all the way back, what we have is the reality that God deals with sin. What happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? Did God remain at a distance until they came to conviction and came appealing to him? No. 
God goes to the garden and calls out sin. He identifies it. He fingers it. And we must take a lesson from this if we're ever to be effective as a church in proclaiming the glories of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to begin with the the misery of the bad news of human sin and separation and, and the fact that all men are what? Depraved and under judgment. And it's got to get more personal than that. It's got to be this Jesus whom you crucified. We see that as Peter preaches here, the word of Christ being applied by the spirit of Christ is bringing sinners to conviction and repentance unto life. And I know that's at the heart of where you're at. You long for everyone to know Christ, don't you? That is your great passion in life. You want people to be saved. You want people to know Christ. You want to see people reconciled. Yes, and God does that through his word and by his spirit through the proclamation of his witnesses. And we've got to take that to heart. Verse 37 again, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day when you were pierced to the heart? Do you recall the day that you realized your sin and your guilt came down upon you like a flood? Do you recall the day? You recall the weight of it? The realization of your guilt? You recognize for the first time your part in the crowd that cried out, crucify. And you realize that the Lamb of God spilled his blood for your soul. And that weight came upon you. You were aware of the certainty of your destruction. And in a sense, it it brought about this disorientation and this desperation in your heart. These Jews had PCSD. Peter had preached them, uh, and his preaching had left them with post-crucifixion stress disorder. They, They were backed into a corner, and their hands were red with blood, and they were guilty of it before the court, and Peter's words dropped like a gavel. And each one, each one, that the Lord was calling to himself, each one of them were pierced to the heart. This word pierced refers to a a sharp pain that's often associated with a deep emotional response. It it could be translated stabbed or to cut. They were suddenly stabbed in the heart. They were cut to the heart. The word of God is a double-edged what? Butter knife? No. It is a double-edged sword. In fact, here it is, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and it is active. Get this, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. You take the sharpest two-edged sword on planet earth, the word of God by the power of the spirit of God is sharper than that. It pierces as far as the division. It goes deep of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow. And it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This word out of Peter's mouth, by the power of the spirit, pierced their hearts. And they were under conviction of sin in a way that they had never known. They were filled with anxiety and they were feeling deep remorse. They were experiencing what amounts to the pain of a God-given sorrow that would ultimately lead them to faith in Christ. And every blood-bought sinner knows this sorrow. It is sorrow before salvation. It is the pain before the gain. And it's an excruciating pain, isn't it? But it is good pain. It's the kind of pain that finally gets your attention and sends you to the physician because you know something's wrong. And that's where these people were. 
And I wonder if you've ever been there. Have you been there? Have you ever known this kind of conviction, the kind of conviction that just you're unglued, you, you're running somewhere, you've got to find a solution to, to the problem that you face, your alienation from God. These people were confronted with it and they understood that they were under judgment. There was no question about it. I'll tell you this, if you ever find yourself there, my friend, do not run from it. Do not take two aspirin and wait until it goes away. Jesus said, seek for the light while you have the light. In other words, there is a day when you will seek for him and you cannot find him. There are those who plead for repentance with tears like Esau, and yet cannot find it. God does not play loose and fast with sin or with people who have an entitled mentality. It is a gift of God if you have found yourself under the conviction of sin and, beloved, have a sensitive conscience and feel the weight of it and let it, let it drive you to Christ. Let it lead you to the God who can forgive your sin, who can cleanse your conscience, who will love you, forgive you, adopt you, make you his own, give you life that you have never known. Or you can turn to the bottle, you can turn to the pill, you can turn to the dispensary. You can buy yourself another car, something hotter, something faster, something taller. And you can keep running down every road that the evil one will offer you. And you will find that every one of those roads, though it's broad, it leads to destruction. Jesus has said it. This isn't me. I'm pleading with you because I'm concerned for your soul. I want you in heaven. Christ shed his blood for sinners. Come to Christ. Come to me all, he says, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friend, I tell you this day, if you will let go of your sins, if you will let go of serving self and you will cling to Christ, you will have the greatest treasure you have ever known. Conviction of sin is the gift of God to alert you to your need of forgiveness. And these men and women and children were destined for judgment and they knew it and there was no way out, at least as far as they could see. And what had been done was done. They had crucified him. He was buried, he was raised, he was returning, and they were guilty. And it is from that place, that hopelessness, staring eternal torment right in the eyes, that one is confronted with that ultimate question. What must I do to be saved? How do I fix this? They look at Peter and the apostles and they literally say, men, brothers. They appeal to them as men and then they say, my, my fellow Jewish brother. Look, again, Christianity is as Jewish as it gets, all right? And they look at him, men, brothers, what shall we do? This is the very question that the rich young ruler who, who ran up to Jesus and bowed before him asked him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This was the question of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. After he'd been struck down and confronted by the Lord, Paul cried out, What should I do, Lord? The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And this is precisely what happens when sinners come under the conviction of the word of God and the spirit of God. How do we fix it? And there is no justifying. There is no blame shifting. There is no hedging. There is just a humble recognition of guilt and a longing to make it right. What should we do? And Peter says, I am glad you asked. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter gives them really two courses of action. First, they must repent, which again brings us to that third pillar of Peter's faithful preaching. He's declared Christ crucified and buried. He's demonstrated and given an apologetic for Christ raised, ascended and exalted. And now he comes, I know what to do next after I've told them about the cross and I've told them about the resurrection, then I need to to call them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what Peter does. And beloved, we should take from this and many other passages of scripture that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is a necessary requirement of the gospel. There are many who who would deny this. There are many today who would simply say, if you simply acknowledge Jesus existed, that he was a historical figure, that he died on a cross, if you give Jesus the slightest indication, you wink at him or you tip your hat, if you just give him that much, then you're in, don't sweat it, go lead your life. That gospel is a damnable gospel. That gospel will never get you to heaven. That is not the gospel that Jesus preached. The gospel that Jesus preached demands repentance. Salvation is not found by accepting Jesus into your heart. Salvation is not found by trying God. Salvation is not found by playing around it at church or sort of tacking on Jesus to your life and then just moving on. Salvation is only and always extended to those who turn to Christ in genuine repentance. Jesus does not forgive unrepentant people. What does it mean to repent? The Greek word is metanoeo. It means to change the mind. But it's no mere intellectual acceptance or change of opinion about Jesus. It is a a change of mind that results in a change of direction. It is, as F.F. Bruce put it, it's a spiritual about face. It is is to make a U-turn in life. It is to turn away from something. It is to turn away from sin. It is to turn away from self. It is to turn away from self-serving, from self-reliance, from self-satisfaction, from self-promotion, from self-rule, from self-confidence, from self-determination, from self-esteem. It is to turn away from all of that, and it is to turn toward God. It is to turn toward God with humility of heart, with love for him, to live for him. With love for him, to live for him. Your life now is no longer about yourself. He is the hub of your universe. He is the center of your world. He is the one whom you serve. He is the one to whom you are loyal. He is the one who is your life. And we can see that illustrated in the Thessalonians who, quote, turn to God from idols to serve, I'm sorry, turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You see, it was a turning to God and it was a turning from idolatry. God took his rightful place on the heart of the the Thessalonians. In the words of Jesus, repentance is to deny yourself, to be done with you, 
to take up your cross and to follow him. It is to turn away from self, to obey him, and to follow him. It is, if you will, to give over the reins of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I wonder, not just if you've known the kind of conviction that these people knew, but have you come to that point in your life where you have turned away from serving self? As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ died so that they who live, that is, those who are spiritually alive, might no longer live for themselves. That's the way you come out of the womb. You're just living for yourself. He died so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now hear this. The Bible is clear that even repentance is the gift of God. And if you're unrepentant, and you want to be repentant, plead to the God who gives repentance. Pray that he might convict you. Pray that he might soften your heart. Pray that, that, that you might turn away and be done with yourself. Acts 5.31 says that God, actually Christ himself, grants repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10, there is a sorrow that is according to the will of God. That whole passage is about true repentance and distinguishing it from false. 2 Timothy 2.25, God is the one who grants repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. But Peter, how, how can God command what we must do. How, how, how can you, Peter, require of me something that God gives as a gift? And again, I say to you, brother, you've got to give it up. The clay does not protest the potter. And this is above your pay grade and mine to try and reconcile these things. We dealt with this a little bit last week with the question of who crucified Christ. Well, Peter says in verse 23, it was the Romans, it was the Jews, and ultimately it was according to the plan of God. And all those human beings were doing precisely what they wanted to do in the murder of Christ. They will be held accountable for it. They are responsible for what they did. But in the end of the day, all they were doing was furthering the, the, the sovereign and predetermined plan of God. We might look in this text and ask this question, who must do the calling unto salvation? Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who calls? Man does. And verse 39, look down at it at the end. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Oh. Look down at verse 47 at the end. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Is man responsible or is God sovereign? Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He answered, I wouldn't try. I don't reconcile friends. It's a good answer. And Peter's certainly not troubled by such questions. He was given the charge by Jesus to preach repentance in Christ's name for the forgiveness of sins, and he's simply obedient to the commission. And he commands them then, repent. I mean, think about it. These desperate people, they, they are troubled. They are anxious. They, they are at sore concern about the state of their soul. And they cry out to Peter, what do we do? What should we do? And Peter doesn't tell them, hey, read a good book on election and just sit back and wait until God does something in your life. He tells them, repent. 
And he also tells them to be baptized. Verse 38. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And we need to be careful here. This has led many down the road of baptismal regeneration. The idea that someone is saved when they are baptized. That it's going through the process of water baptism that washes and cleanses of sin and ultimately you're saved. Catholics believe this when, when an infant is, is baptized into the Catholic church that original sin is wiped away and that baby starts with a, a clean slate. That is wrong for lack of a better word. When you see the word, and this, this should not be new to you, we've talked about this many times, but when you see the word baptized, baptism in scripture, you should think immersion into or unity with. That's what we should think about first. Clearly there's a lot in the Bible on water baptism but most of the references to, the bap to baptism in the New Testament have little to nothing to do with the ritual of water baptism. The idea is immersion into or union with. And Peter is certainly here, don't get me wrong, he's commanding these folks to be baptized in water. You see it in verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized But that baptism is simply an external ceremonial expression of the internal and genuine faith that these people had for the Lord Jesus Christ. Really what Peter is calling for when he demands that they be baptized is precisely this, that they would repent and believe. That they would repent and exercise faith. And the expression of that genuine faith would be water baptism in the name of Jesus. They would identify with Christ through water baptism. And they would make that profession very, very public. Israel had a really long history, frankly, with the practice of baptism. Jews regularly practice immersion in water. They would go to a mikvah and they would, they would bathe themselves for the purpose of symbolic purification so that they could participate in the religious life of Israel. They would come in contact with something that was unclean. They would go through childbirth. They would, they would touch a dead body. They would somehow encounter an animal that was unclean, and they had to be cleansed before they could participate again in the worship of Israel. And so they would go into a mikvah, and they would, they would basically baptize themselves. So it certainly had the concept of cleansing. But I want you to hear this. I don't know that you've ever noted it. But you can see it in Matthew 3, in Mark 1, in Luke 3, that John the Baptist, it is said of him over and over and over again, that he, he had a baptism of what? You know this much for sure. He had what kind of baptism? Of repentance. But listen, the text says that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, John, as you know, was the forerunner of Christ, and he came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he was declaring that through baptism, people who would be baptized by him would be getting ready and getting prepared for the one who would come, who would give his life as the Lamb of God for the sins of uh, of men, and they were, they were getting baptized in preparation that their sins might be forgiven them through the sacrifice of the Messiah. So don't get it wrong. Baptism does not cleanse. It cannot cleanse of sin. Peter, in fact, in his first epistle, chapter 3 and verse 21, writes, baptism, get this, don't, don't, Hear me out. <laughs> Baptism now saves you. It does? Yeah. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal 
of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it's union with Christ that saves. It's immersion into Christ that saves. And water baptism is just the outward expression of that. Water baptism could remove dirt on the outside, but only Jesus can remove the dirt on the inside. So John prepared the people for that Messiah who would come, who then promised what? To baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter is preaching at this point, and he says to them, listen, this is the day that John the Baptist was talking about. This is the day that John was speaking of, and each one of you then must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now that is a loaded phrase. They were to express publicly their association with Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, the Messiah. Remember, Christ is not his last name. He was the Messiah. And the idea or the concept of his name is that everything about his, associated with his person and his work, all that Christ is and all that he came to do, I affirm it, I turn away from myself, I turn away from Judaism, I turn away from trusting in anything else. When it comes to salvation, Jesus is my man. He and he alone, the Son of God, the mediator between God and man, the Lord, the man, Jesus Christ, that perfect God-man given for my salvation, I associate with him. This was a very visible personal thing each one of them being baptized. And again, I, I, I need to remind you of the cost of this sort of thing. In Israel, to publicly declare your loyalty to Jesus of Nazareth, the, the cost of that couldn't be higher. They were, they were cut off from all of Jewish worship. They were cut off from the temple. They were cut off from their local synagogue. They were cut off from Israel. They were cut off from their families. They were cut off from the social sphere in which they lived. They were not even given the power essentially to buy and to sell. I mean, life was over if you associate with Jesus. No wonder Jesus spoke in terms of giving up one's life for his sake. And their attention and their loyalty must be affixed on Christ and the all-sufficient Christ and his name alone. And then Peter promises them a gift. He reminds them of a promised gift would probably be a better way to put it. At the end of verse 38, he says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, here's another potential stumbling block. We're not building here, we refuse to do it, a doctrine of subsequence. I have a hard time with that word. Subsequence. The idea that somehow the baptism of the Holy Spirit follows repentance and faith in Christ. Sometime after you're born again, you receive the Spirit of God. There are there are denominations that teach just that thing. Acts, you remember, is a unique book, and this is a unique period in salvation history, and there are reasons that we see believers in the book of Acts being baptized after it's stated that they were saved, and that is all because of, of, of a bunch of of, of unique purposes that God had for this time. And I'm not going to take you back through all of that. We spent four weeks on it. What Peter is telling his audience is this, as he persuades them to believe. It's simply this. Look, when you believe, when you trust in Christ, when you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for salvation, you will receive the very personal indwelling of the Spirit of God. Which again, how easy that is to overlook. And how easy it is to forget all that the Spirit accomplishes in our lives. But Peter's point is that faith in Christ results in the life of Christ 
in the believer's heart by the indwelling spirit. This is the promise, he says, verse 39, of God to everyone who trusts in Christ. For the promise is for you. And by that he means you, my Jewish audience. And it is for your children. And by that he means that this promise goes to you, but it is also to your posterity after you. And then he says, it is for all who are far off, and we can't help but hear that and think, that's us, that's where we fit in, and you're right. But Peter didn't know it yet. I think Peter probably thought he was just referring to the Jews that were dispersed, those Jews that had traveled so far to be at the Feast of Pentecost. But this promise was for Israel and for Israel's children, and that is given to us in the Old Testament in a number of places. Let me just give you a few. Isaiah 44.3, speaking to Israel whom he had chosen, he says, I will pour out my spirit on your seed and my blessing upon your offspring. Ezekiel 36, that marvelous passage, I will will sprinkle clean water on you and you're going to be clean. And he he goes through this litany of things over and over again. I will do this, and I will do that. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit within you. And then he says these words, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel 37, 14, and I will put my spirit within you within you. Remember, this is that great text of the, of the dry bones in the valley. Prophesy to these bones, Ezekiel. Can they live? I don't know, Lord, you know. And he says, look, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land, and then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it. In fact, just look over it. Verse 17, Peter quoting again from Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit, note this, on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male and female slaves in those days, I will pour my spirit out, and they shall prophesy. The idea is this is the spirit being poured out upon the people of God without exception. Everyone who trusts in Christ will have the spirit of God. Luke wants to wrap this up, so we will too. Verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this crooked generation. In other words, Luke didn't record everything that Peter preached on this day, and what we have in Luke's account is a spirit-inspired synopsis of Peter's sermon. There were many other words, according to Luke. This went on a lot longer than it takes you and me to simply read this text. But one thing that was evident to everybody who stood there before Peter was that A, he was preaching the word of God, B, he was calling them to account, and C, he was blood-earnest. He was as serious as a man can be. Steve Lawson says gravitas, gravity, weight, is the single most important characteristic in the preacher's preaching, humanly speaking. Nothing light, nothing silly, nothing shallow, nothing nothing trifling. Paul commanded Titus, when preaching, he says, look, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Brothers and sisters, is that your vision of the kind of preaching you want to sit under? Is that your vision of the kind of preaching you need, that I need? 
Would you be willing to countenance for two seconds a preacher who would not let you disregard the word of God he was preaching? Or is it, and I know this, I shouldn't even ask the question because you're here. But so many in our day, just like a feather in their ear, something to tickle, something to allure, something short, something pithy, something powerless, utterly powerless. Peter preaches like a dying man to dying men. And he has upheld the truth of the word of God and he will not be disregarded. This is why Paul asked for prayer in Ephesians 6.20 and in Colossians. He prays, pray that, he asked the, the church, pray that I might speak the word boldly as I ought to speak. There is a wrong way to proclaim the truth. Boldness is what we need, beloved. And Peter preaches this way, and so should we. And the text tells us, and he kept on exhorting them. He wouldn't back off. I love Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, look, as an ambassador for Christ, I'm not above begging you to be reconciled to God. I beg you. Some will mock, but some, beloved, will be saved. Praise the Lord for verse 41. So then, let's wrap all this up, Luke says, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> that a sermon like this would see a response like that. I had a professor in seminary look across the class and, and he said, men, you're not any good at all until you preach 200 sermons. Tell Peter that. This is his first. I was tempted to title this message, Peter Goes Fishing, because what a catch. I'll save that for another day. Maybe next week. Never know. You see, Luke... Luke has a purpose in all that he's recording here by the power of the Spirit, by the inspiration of the Spirit. Luke wants us to remember that, that Jesus has called us to bear witness of his saving work. Luke wants us to see that what Christ commissioned us to do is in fact by his power and his Spirit effective for accomplishing those purposes that Christ is building his church and nothing can stand against it. Beloved, he wants us to understand that the Lord who saved us has given us a clear and a powerful and a glorious gospel. We need nothing more. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to come up with a lesson. You just need to be faithful to articulate what he's given to you. Have I made the case from Scripture that Peter did nothing more than follow the Lord's instruction to proclaim the suffering of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins? It's crystal clear. And if you didn't get it this time, you'll get it over and over and over again through the book of Acts because we need it. Beloved, we must learn to proclaim the word of God unapologetically, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You are not. I am not. Peter is not. We have got to learn like Peter to confront the sinner's sin. We've got to learn like Peter to preach Christ crucified, risen, exalted as Lord and Savior. We've got to learn to tell people of Christ's return and to warn them of the wrath to come. We've got to boldly call sinners for repentance and urge them in faith. You know, we've got to urge sinners to call upon the name of the Lord so that they might be saved. 
You say, yeah, right. Proclaim those, those things. Proclaim those things we're told and, and, and no one will come. No one will be saved. No one will look to Christ. The cost is too high. The gate is too narrow. The road is too difficult. And, and MacArthur states this so well, quote, much present-day evangelism seeks to make coming to Christ as easy as possible. Many today would be appalled that Peter, that Peter made the cost of coming to Christ so high. How could he expect them to turn their backs publicly on their culture? How could he ask them to risk becoming outcasts among their families and society? How could he demand that they accept as Messiah the very one that their leaders had rejected and executed, end quote? And that is exactly right. The modern naysayer would say no one, the church strategist, all, the, the, all that seeker-sensitive, uh, soft gospel light type stuff, all of that stuff, they, they will say to you, no one will come and no one will believe and no one will be saved. And I say to you again, tell that to Peter. I say to them again, have you, have you considered all the people gathered at the church at which I minister? You're not no one. We're not no one. Did you or did you not come to grips with your sin as they were exposed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God? You did. And was Christ publicly pro pro portrayed before you as crucified, risen, and exalted? And did you not have anxiety of heart? And did you not think to yourself and then cry out to God, what must I do? Did you not take that message, which is foolishness to the unbeliever and to those who are perishing, but it is the wisdom of God. It became the wisdom of God to you. And you said, amen, it's true, I bow. Lord, forgive me. And you called out on the Lord for salvation. And he, in fact, saved you, brothers, sisters. You're not nobody responding to that kind of message. People do, in fact, get saved in this generation. There is a world out there that needs our preaching. Christ has given us that message. Oh, what a message and oh, what a hope. And the word of the cross is in fact foolishness to those who are perishing. To some you will be an aroma of death to death, but to others, beloved, we will be the aroma of life to life. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God, the wisdom of God. To those who are the called, he says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Is there anybody in here who would raise their hand and say, no, the reason I came to Christ, you would not believe the messenger. He was so persuasive. She was so effective in the way she, like a physician, a spiritual physician, applied the truth to my soul. He was so clever. He caught me by surprise and I found myself kneeling before the cross. None of you would say that. It's the work of God and the word of God through the people of God. Beloved, it is not about you. It's not about your reputation. It's not about your giftedness as a soul winner. You are a clay pot who has a priceless treasure dwelling within. We love to sing it, don't we? It's about your faithfulness to the assignment that God has given to you and to me and to us and to his people across the face of the globe to proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and that men must repent and believe. And we, we don't hide our, our light under a basket, do we? We're not hesitant to speak of the Lord because we have a spirit of timidity, are we? 
we're not ashamed of the gospel, are we? We're not seeking to be thought as wise and as strong and as noble. I know. Me too. And we struggle mightily here. Beloved, are we ready to repent of our shame and our timidity and those tongues which cleave to the roof of our mouth and those lips that are pursed and tight where we're just so terrified of letting others know that we publicly identify with Christ and that there's salvation in no other name. Are we ready to repent of that and, and, and by God's grace see a change effected in our life? Beloved, let's be done with living our lives so that we, we are esteemed and thought well of by men. Who cares? It is far better to be dishonored by men and to be honored by God in the end. And let's be finished with our over-concern for our intellect and our presentation and our capacity to answer every, every rebel question. Let's just embrace this simple gospel that saves sinners and can we declare it with love and with joy? What do you have to lose? You have everything because you have Christ. They have nothing because they, they do not have Christ. They cannot take Christ from you. They cannot take anything from you of consequence. You have nothing to lose. Go out in love, serve men, shine the light of Christ, speak the truth of the gospel. Don't put confidence in yourself, but trust the Lord that he will save his people through the preaching of his word through your mouth. Beloved, let each of us determine by the grace of God to preach Christ at least once this week. That's what repentance looks like. It moves out. It's active. It changes course. It says, I'm done being a covert Christian. I'm going to be public for Jesus. I don't care what people think. Once this week, and if, if you did it once next week and once the week after and through the month of October and November and, and all the way out for an entire year, do you understand you would have declared the glory of the gospel, the only saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 52 times in a year, and I'm going to guess that was more than in 2022. I'd settle for once a month. D.L. Moody said, he came home one night and he came to the, the, the recollection. I remember reading it and it just came on me like a flood. He, he, had, he had neglected, he said, to talk of Christ to even one person that day. So he got out of bed, reclothed himself, and went down to a street corner till he had somebody he could testify to. Oh, that we would live with that kind of urgency and that kind of love for a perishing world. Beloved, by the word of God and through the people of God, according to the power of the spirit of God, may we see God adding to our number daily those who are being saved. Not to us, O Lord, not for our glory, but for the glory of his name. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Lord, we're humbled at the obedience of Peter here. His boldness, his courage, his willingness to stand before thousands. Lord, we thank you for it. We know what a weak man Peter was. We know how timid he was. We know how fearful he was. We know that he cowered before even a, a little servant girl denying you, and yet by your power in his life, you turned a fearful man into a mighty man of God. 
who declared your truth to the salvation of many by your grace. And Lord, that you would do that in our midst. Again, that we might see many added to the hallelujah chorus and all that to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Beloved, go this week. Enjoy the Lord your God. Delight yourself to testify of him by the way you live and the things you say. And know that that is God working out those works which he prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Let your heart be filled with joy in obedience to Christ our Lord and our Savior. God bless you.